You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 278 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Today is the winter solstice of 2020 and I would like to celebrate this occasion by taking a look at the Bhagavad Gita and reality. I've been reading the Gita a lot recently and I want to share this awesome sacred text with all of you and perhaps inspire you to read it yourself. The Bhagavad Gita, often referred to as the Gita, is a 700-verse Hindu scripture that is part of the epic Mahabharata, commonly dated to the 2nd century BCE. The Gita is set in a narrative framework of a dialogue between Arjuna and his guide and charioteer Krishna, an avatar of the Lord Vishnu. I want to begin with a short 10-minute talk called The Message of the Gita by Janki Santoke. In this recording you'll also hear the soothing voice of Ram Das. There is nothing beyond me. Everything rests upon me. As pearls are strung on a thread. The Bhagavad Gita is a scriptural text that has been extracted from a much larger text known as the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is probably one of the largest texts known to mankind. It has almost a hundred thousand verses and it's said to be written by the sage Ved Vyasa. The Mahabharata contains so many stories, they're all elucidating many facts about life. But they're basically all explaining the philosophy of the Mahabharata which is encapsulated in the 700 verses of the Bhagavad Gita. This text is very sacred, it is like a bible to the Hindus, it's also one of is the Prasthanatraya which is the three which is the three foundational textbooks of Vedanta and the other two besides the Bhagavad Gita being the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutras. Now, this text, so sacred, so divine, so important in the tradition, what is its message? What is it trying to tell us? Its entire message can be encapsulated between its first and last words. It begins with the word dharma. Dharma kshetre, kurukshetre, samaveta yuyutsavaha. So it starts with the word dharma and then ends with the word mama. Iti mam, mati mama, it ends with the word mama. So if we have to understand what is the message of the Bhagavad Gita, it has to be this. Dharma mama, what is my dharma? The whole point of the Bhagavad Gita is to understand this simple concept, what is my dharma? Now what is my dharma means what? What is dharma? Dharma means well, many things, but in this context, dharma means original nature. Who am I? What am I? The dharma of sugar is sweetness. The dharma of fire is heat. 
You can have brown sugar and blue sugar and caster sugar and all sorts of sugar, but you can never have sugar which is not sweet. You can have a conflagration, you can have a spark, you can have a big fire, a small fire, you can have any type of fire. But wherever there is fire, there will be heat. The dharma of sugar is sweetness. Sugar will always be sweet. The dharma of fire is heat. There will always be heat. What is my dharma? Who am I? What am I? This is what the Bhagavad Gita is trying to tell us. So what is my original nature? Who am I? What Vedanta tells us is who I am. The answer to that question, the Guru gives, is he says, Tat Tvam Asi, that thou art. That which you are seeking, that self, that God, whatever you are seeking, that thou art, the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality. In other words, you are God, you are Brahman. If it be true that I am God, if it be true that I am the ultimate reality, then why do I not know this? This is me. Then why don't I know that I am God? Why, why do I feel limited? Why do I feel that I am not that? This is because my original nature, the God principle in me, is encrusted with desires. My desires make the world very interesting to me. And since this incrustation of desires is there, I cannot see anything for what it really is. It's the nature of desires. It makes us see things the way we would like to see them, not what they really are. So because of the incrustation of desires, I do not know myself for what I am, which is that God principle. So the whole spiritual sadhana is nothing but the removal of these desires. Therefore, all religions have personified desire as the negative part. Christianity calls it Satan and uh, Mormonism calls it Shaitan. Uh, Buddhism calls it Mara. Hindus call it Asura. That which stands between us and God. But what stops me from knowing myself, my understanding my own greatness or my own desires? So the whole spiritual path is the removal of these desires. Some people say, look, we are very busy with our life. We have no time for spirituality. Where is one who is going to do all this stuff? Um, I can't do it. I have many things to do in this world. To which the Bhagavad Gita also draws our attention to the fact that desires are not only an interruption in our spiritual life. Desires are an interruption in our material life. This is something we need to understand. Just think about it. Why does our productivity fall? Because of desires. Why does a student not write the exam as well as he knows how to do it? Because he's caught up with the desire. Why can't a young man go and speak to a girl he likes? Why does he mess it up? Why can't he just have a normal conversation? Desire. Why is it that I cannot sleep at night? Desire. Everything that is stopping me from being productive is desire. So my actions, my productivity, my success is interrupted by desire. My relationships with people are interrupted by desire. I'm not able to have a proper relationship because I'm always pushing my desire on other people. 
telling other people what to do, how to behave, how they should make me happy. I'm not able to have a, a harmonious relationship because of desire. I'm not able to be happy because of desires. The more the desires are playing in me, the less happiness I will experience. I'm always thinking about what I don't have and making myself utterly miserable about it. I may have all the things of the world and lack just one and I can be utterly miserable. So what's giving me misery? What's taking my happiness away? Desire. What's taking my morality away? Why are people not ethical? Why are people not moral nowadays? Desire. When you desire so much wealth, well beyond your own capacities, what will you do other than being criminal, being immoral? What else will you do? Every time we have done an immoral act, is it not because of desire? Our knowledge is intercepted by desire too. Haven't you ever seen this? That you always know how to respond to another person. Suppose someone has been rude to you at a party. You know exactly how to respond to him after you get home. At that point, you don't know what to say. Why do you not know what to say at that point? Why do you know what to say when you get back home? Desire has been interrupting your knowledge. Desire therefore ruins not only our spiritual life but also our material life. It interrupts our ability to do proper action. It interrupts our relationships. It interrupts our happiness. It interrupts our morality. It interrupts our knowledge. And yet we want to cling on to it. Strange. So the Bhagavad Gita tells us that the way to a productive life is through the re removal of these desires. But the thing about desires is how do you remove them? If you have a desire, you have it. How can you remove it? Suppose I want money. Well, I want money. How can I remove the desire for money? If I start thinking, I don't want money, I don't want money. Well, I'm still thinking of money, am I not? So you can remove desires. What you can do is redirect desires. Have something higher in life. When you are determined to reach some higher spiritual goal or any higher goal, the lower desires automatically fall off. So how does one execute that? You do it in three parts. Religion gives us three parts. Karma Yoga, which means with our body we serve. Bhakti Yoga, which means with our mind we feel gratitude and surrender. And Jnana Yoga, with our intellect, we discriminate between the higher and the lower. By these methods, desires reduce. And then we come to the next stage, which is known as Dhyana Yoga. And from Dhyana, meditation, we reach the state of enlightenment or self-realization, where we come to know what is our original nature. We find out who we are. We are that infinite self. We are that all-powerful being. At the moment, misunderstanding ourselves to be this limited creature. So what is the message of the Bhagavad Gita? To understand Dharma Mama. What is my being? Who am I? What I am is that eternal self.
Well, I hope that got your taste buds buzzing. Let's continue. Uh, I want to play an excerpt now from chapter 2 of the Gita. So far my favorite chapter. And it's also a chapter that some claim is also a summary of the whole Gita. So if you're lazy, you can just read chapter 2. But I highly recommend you read the whole thing. It's not a very long book anyway. It's not It's not like the Bible. It's condensed and to the point. And the excerpt uh, I will play uh, from chapter 2 of the Gita is about five minutes long. In this passage, Arjuna questions the thought of killing his kinsmen in the coming battle. What you will hear now is Krishna's reply to this. You grieve for those who should not be grieved for, yet you also speak words of wisdom. But the truly wise do not grieve for anyone. They do not grieve for the living and they do not grieve for the dead. Never was there a time when you did not exist or I did not exist or all these kings did not exist. Nor will there ever be a time after this when we all shall cease to exist. Just as the soul while in the body passes through the stages of childhood, youth and old age so too is the taking on of another body by the soul after death part of the journey of the soul. The wise and the steadfast man is not agitated or confused by this. Feelings of heat and cold, pleasure and pain are the result of the senses coming in contact with the objects of the senses. They are all temporary and transient in nature. They come and they go. They have a beginning and they have an end. They do not last forever. Therefore, learn to endure them. Learn to bear them patiently. The steady person who is not troubled by these, on whom these have no effect, and who remains the same in pleasure and in pain, he is wise and he makes himself fit for eternal life. Those who know the truth have realized the distinction between what is real and what is unreal. The real is that which is eternal, which can never cease to exist, it can never perish. While the unreal is transient and temporary, it ceases to exist and it has to perish. The body is unreal and it has to perish, while the soul, the Atma, is real and can never perish. The soul, the Atma, which pervades the whole world, which pervades this entire creation, is indestructible. No one can bring about the destruction of this changeless being. It cannot be destroyed by anything or by anyone. 
it is only the bodies of the eternal embodied soul which come to an end and not the soul itself the end of the soul can never come about because the soul is indestructible it is beyond comprehension and understanding too therefore parth knowing this you should fight he who thinks that the soul that the atma kills and he who thinks that the atma is killed both fail to see the truth because the atma neither kills nor is it killed the soul is never born nor does it ever die nor having come into existence will it ever cease to exist it always existed and it will always exist it is unborn it is eternal it is permanent and it is immemorial it is not killed when the body is killed it does not die when the body dies he who knows that the soul is indestructible and eternal that it is uncreated and unchanging how then can such a person kill anyone or cause anyone to be killed those who know the truth have realized the distinction between what is real and what is unreal the real is that which is eternal which can never cease to exist it can never perish while the unreal is transient and temporary it ceases to exist and it has to perish if you find yourself interested in the nature of reality and consciousness I highly recommend giving the Gita a chance. But if you for some reason prefer to look at the concept of reality from a more scientific perspective, then I'm not the man to deny you this. So, without further ado, I want to play something from a guy called Donald Hoffman. Hoffman is an American cognitive psychologist at the University of California. His book The Case Against Reality argues that perception doesn't present things as they are but instead acts like a desktop interface enabling us to interact with the world. I now want to play an excellent 20-minute TED talk of his called Do We See Reality As It Is? I love a great mystery and I'm fascinated by the greatest unsolved mystery in science. Perhaps because it's personal. It's about who we are. and i can't help but be curious the mystery is this what is the relationship between your brain and your conscious experiences such as your experience of the taste of chocolate or the feeling of velvet now this mystery is not new in 1868 thomas huxley wrote how it is that anything so remarkable as a state of consciousness comes about as the result of irritating nervous tissue is just as unaccountable as the appearance of the genie when Aladdin rubbed his lamp. Now Huxley knew that brain activity and conscious experiences are correlated, but he didn't know why. To the science of his day, it was a mystery. In the years since Huxley, science has learned a lot about brain activity, but the relationship between brain activity and conscious experiences is still a mystery. Why? Why have we made so little progress? Well, 
Some experts think that we can't solve this problem because we lack the necessary concepts and intelligence. We don't expect monkeys to solve problems in quantum mechanics, and as it happens, we can't expect our species to solve this problem either. Well, I disagree. I'm more optimistic. I think we've simply made a false assumption. Once we fix it, we just might solve this problem. Today, I'd like to tell you what that assumption is, why it's false, and how to fix it. Let's begin with a question: Do we see reality as it is? I open my eyes, and I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato a meter away. As a result, I come to believe that in reality there's a red tomato a meter away. I then close my eyes, and my experience changes to a gray field. But is it still the case that in reality there's a red tomato a meter away? I think so. But could I be wrong? Could I be misinterpreting the nature of my perceptions? We have misinterpreted our perceptions before. We used to think the Earth is flat because it looks that way. Pythagoras discovered that we were wrong. Then we thought that the Earth is the unmoving center of the universe, again because it looks that way. Copernicus and Galileo discovered again that we were wrong. Galileo then wondered if we might be misinterpreting our experiences in other ways. He wrote, "I think that tastes, odors, colors, and so on, reside in consciousness. Hence, if the living creature were removed, all these qualities would be annihilated." Now that's a stunning claim. Could Galileo be right? Could we really be misinterpreting our experiences that badly? What does modern science have to say about this? Well, neuroscientists tell us that about a third of the brain's cortex is engaged in vision. When you simply open your eyes and look about this room, billions of neurons and trillions of synapses are engaged. Now, this is a bit surprising because, to the extent that we think about vision at all, we think of it as like a camera that just takes a picture of objective reality as it is. Now there is a part of vision that's like a camera. The eye has a lens that focuses an image on the back of the eye, where there are 130 million photoreceptors. So the eye is like a 130 megapixel camera. But that doesn't explain the billions of neurons and trillions of synapses that are engaged in vision. What are these neurons up to? Well, neuroscientists tell us that they're creating in real time. All the shapes, objects, colors, and motions that we see—it feels like we're just taking a snapshot of this room the way it is. But in fact, we're constructing everything that we see. We don't construct the whole world at once; we construct what we need in the moment. Now, there are many demonstrations that are quite compelling that we construct what we see. I'll just show you two. In this example, you see some red discs with bits cut out of them. But if I just rotate the discs a little bit, suddenly you see a 3D cube pop out of the screen. Now the screen, of course, is flat, so the three-dimensional cube that you're experiencing must be your construction. In this next example, you see glowing blue bars with pretty sharp edges moving across a field of dots. In fact. 
No dots move. All I'm doing from frame to frame is changing the colors of dots from blue to black or black to blue. But when I do this quickly, your visual system creates the glowing blue bars with the sharp edges and the motion. There are many more examples, but these are just two that you construct what you see. But neuroscientists go further. They say that we reconstruct reality. So when I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato, that experience is actually an accurate reconstruction of the properties of a real red tomato that would exist even if I weren't looking. Now, why would neuroscientists say that we don't just construct, we reconstruct? Well, the standard argument given is usually an evolutionary one. Those of our ancestors who saw more accurately had a competitive advantage compared to those who saw less accurately, and therefore they were more likely to pass on their genes. We're the offspring of those who saw more accurately, and so we can be confident that, in the normal case, our perceptions are accurate. You see this in the standard textbooks. One textbook says, for example, evolutionarily speaking, vision is useful precisely because it's so accurate. So the idea is that accurate perceptions are fitter perceptions. They give you a survival advantage. Now, is this correct? Is this the right interpretation of evolutionary theory? Well, let's first look at a couple examples in nature. The Australian jewel beetle is dimpled, glossy, and brown. The female is flightless. The male flies, looking, of course, for a hot female. When he finds one, he alights. And mates. There's another species in the outback, Homo sapiens. The male of this species has a massive brain that he uses to hunt for cold beer. <laughs> and when he finds one, he drains it and sometimes throws the bottle into the outback. Now, as it happens, these bottles are dimpled, glossy, and just the right shade of brown to tickle the fancy of these beetles. The males swarm all over the bottles, trying to mate. They lose all interest in the real females. A classic case of the male leaving the female for the bottle. <laughs> the species almost went extinct. Australia had to change its bottles to save its beetles. <laughs> Now, the males. Had successfully found females for thousands, perhaps millions of years. It looked like they saw reality as it is, but apparently not. Evolution had given them a hack. A female is anything dimpled, glossy, and brown. The bigger, the better. <laughs> Even when crawling all over the bottle, the male couldn't discover his mistake. Now you might say beetles, sure. They're very simple creatures, but surely not mammals. Mammals don't rely on tricks. Well, I won't dwell on this, but you get the idea. <laughs> so this raises an important technical question: Does natural selection really favor seeing reality as it is? Fortunately, we don't have to wave our hands and guess. Evolution is a mathematically precise theory. We can use the equations of evolution to check this out. 
We can have various organisms and artificial worlds compete and see which survive and which thrive, which sensory systems are more fit. A key notion in those equations is fitness. Consider this stake. What does this stake do for the fitness of an animal? Well, for a hungry lion looking to eat, it enhances fitness. For a well-fed lion looking to mate, it doesn't enhance fitness. And for a rabbit in any state, it doesn't enhance fitness. So fitness does depend on reality as it is, yes, but also on the organism, its state, and its action. Fitness is not the same thing as reality as it is, and it's fitness and not reality as it is that figures centrally in the equations of evolution. So in my lab, we have run hundreds of thousands of evolutionary game simulations with lots of different randomly chosen worlds and organisms that compete for resources in those worlds. Some of the organisms see all of the reality, others see just part of the reality, and some see none of the reality, only fitness. Who wins? Well, I hate to break it to you, but perception of reality goes extinct. In almost every simulation, organisms that see none of reality but are just tuned to fitness drive to extinction all the organisms that perceive reality as it is. So the bottom line is evolution does not favor vertical or accurate perceptions. Those perceptions of reality go extinct. Now, this is a bit stunning. How can it be that not seeing the world accurately gives us a survival advantage? That is a bit counterintuitive. But remember the jewel beetle. The jewel beetle survived for thousands, perhaps millions of years, using simple tricks and hacks. What the equations of evolution are telling us is that all organisms, including us, are in the same boat as the jewel beetle. We do not see reality as it is. We're shaped with tricks and hacks that keep us alive. Still, we need some help with our intuitions. How can not perceiving reality as it is be useful? Well, fortunately, we have a very helpful metaphor, the desktop interface on your computer. Consider that blue icon for a TED talk that you're writing. Now, the icon is blue and rectangular and in the lower right corner of the desktop. Does that mean that the text file itself in the computer is blue, rectangular, and in the lower right-hand corner of the computer? Of course not. Anyone who thought that misinterprets the purpose of the interface. It's not there to show you the reality of the computer. In fact, it's there to hide that reality. You don't want to know about the diodes and resistors and all the megabytes of software. If you had to deal with that, you could never write your text file or edit your photo. So the idea is that evolution has given us an interface that hides reality and guides adaptive behavior. Space and time, as you perceive them right now, are your desktop. Physical objects are simply icons in that desktop. There's an obvious objection. Hoffman, if you think that train coming down the track at 200 miles an hour is just an icon of your desktop, why don't you step in front of it? And after you're gone and your theory with you, we'll know that there's more to that train than just an icon. Well, I wouldn't step in front of that train 
for the same reason that I wouldn't carelessly drag that icon to the trash can. Not because I take the icon literally. The file is not literally blue or rectangular. But I do take it seriously. I could lose weeks of work. Similarly, evolution has shaped us with perceptual symbols that are designed to keep us alive. We better take them seriously. If you see a snake, don't pick it up. If you see a cliff, don't jump off. They're designed to keep us safe, and we should take them seriously. But that does not mean that we should take them literally. That's a logical error. Another objection. Now, there's nothing really new here. Physicists have told us for a long time that the metal of that train looks solid, but really it's mostly empty space with microscopic particles zipping around. There's nothing new here. Well, not exactly. It's like saying, "I know that that blue icon on the desktop is not the reality of the computer, but if I pull out my trusty magnifying glass and look really closely, I see little pixels, and that's the reality of the computer." Well, not really. You're still on the desktop, and that's the point. Those microscopic particles are still in space and time. They're still in the user interface. So I'm saying something far more radical than those physicists. Finally, you might object. Look, we all see the train. Therefore, none of us constructs the train. But remember this example. In this example, we all see a cube. But the screen is flat, so the cube that you see. Is the cube that you construct? We all see a cube because we all, each one of us, constructs the cube that we see. The same is true of the train. We all see a train because we each see the train that we construct. And the same is true of all physical objects. We're inclined to think that perception is like a window on reality as it is. The theory of evolution is telling us. That this is an incorrect interpretation of our perceptions. Instead, reality is more like a 3D desktop that's designed to hide the complexity of the real world and guide adaptive behavior. Space, as you perceive it, is your desktop. Physical objects are just the icons in that desktop. We used to think that the Earth is flat because it looks that way. Then we thought that the Earth is the unmoving center of reality because it looks that way. We were wrong. We had misinterpreted our perceptions. Now we believe that space-time and objects are the nature of reality as it is. The theory of evolution is telling us that once again we're wrong. We're misinterpreting the content of our perceptual experiences. There's something that exists when you don't look, but it's not space-time and physical objects. It's hard for us to let go of space-time and objects. As it is for the jewel beetle to let go of its bottle. Why? Because we're blind to our own blindnesses. But we have an advantage over the jewel beetle: our science and technology. By peering through the lens of a telescope, we discovered that the Earth is not the unmoving center of reality.、And、by peering through the lens of the theory of evolution, we discovered that space-time and objects are not the nature of reality. When I Have a perceptual experience that I describe as a red tomato. I am interacting with reality, but that reality is not a red tomato, and is nothing like a red tomato. Similarly, when I have an experience that I describe as a lion or a steak, I'm interacting with reality, but that reality is not a lion or a steak.
And here's the kicker: when I have a perceptual experience that I describe as a brain or neurons, I am interacting with reality, but that reality is not a brain or neurons, and it's nothing like a brain or neurons. And that reality, whatever it is, is the real source of cause and effect in the world, not brains, not neurons. Brains and neurons have no causal powers; they cause none of our perceptual experiences and none of our behavior. Brains and neurons are a species-specific set of symbols, a hack. What does this mean for the mystery of consciousness? Well, it opens up new possibilities. For instance, perhaps reality is some vast machine that causes our conscious experiences. I doubt this, but it's worth exploring. Perhaps reality is some vast interacting network of conscious agents, simple and complex, that cause each other's conscious experiences. Actually, this isn't as crazy an idea as it seems, and I'm currently exploring it. But but here's the point. Once we let go of our massively intuitive but massively false assumption about the nature of reality, it opens up new ways to think about life's greatest mystery. I bet that reality will end up turning out to be more fascinating and unexpected than we'd ever imagined. The theory of evolution presents us with the ultimate dare: dare to recognize that perception is not about seeing truth. It's about having kids. And by the way, even this TED is just in your head. Thank you very much. <laughs>
I've already posted some videos over there. Uh, just search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and I'm sure you'll find it. I'll see you in the next one, which will be the last episode of 2020. Freedom is in the mind.
jayo jayo govinda jayo jayo gopal jayo jayo radha ramana hari govinda jayo jayo govinda jayo jayo gopal jayo jayo radha ramana hari govinda jayo jayo govinda jayo
Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama. 